Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Angel Eduardo, and I'll be flying solo today while my co-host, Melissa Chen, is away. Today, I'm speaking with Monica Guzman. Monica is the Director of Digital and Storytelling at Braver Angels, a nonprofit working to depolarize America. She's co-founder of the award-winning Seattle newsletter, The Evergrey, host of the Crosscut interview series, Northwest Newsmakers and author of the recent best-selling book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Today we discuss the origins of her curiosity and what makes her so good at being curious, how being an immigrant helped open her eyes to the benefits of curiosity, her concept of SOS, sorting, othering, and siloing, and how it affects our discourse. We discuss whether we've always been this divided or if we're uniquely divided now, the ways technology and social media affect communication, the tension and interplay between fear, ignorance, and certainty, and how these emotions affect our ability to be curious, how to foster curiosity in others, and much, much more. Ladies and gentlemen, Monica Guzman. Monica Guzman, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Hey, Angel. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you. I think we we were chatting a minute ago, actually, that this is the first time we're actually sitting down, just you and me. Mm -hmm. And we're actually going to do it twice. So, you know, today is March Mm -hmm. 9th and we're doing this again on March 30th in in New York City at a, is it a bookstore? I think it's Uh, a bookstore. It's Saxworks, which is a co-working space. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Uh, And it'll be in person. I just, I'm so excited about that. Back to in person. Yay. I know, oh, I know. Yeah. It's going to be great. So obviously the the subject of our conversation will primarily be your book. I never thought of it that way, which is already a bestseller. It's only been officially out for 24 hours. I know. <laughs> so congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and yeah, so so let's let's um let's fill the audience in a little bit about your background. Uh, who yeah. are you? Where do you come from? What's going on here? Yep. So I'm uh, coming to you live from Seattle, Washington, uh, where the weather is surprisingly beautiful. I'll just say that right now. And I have um, been a journalist most of my career. I've lived in Seattle since 2007. I was born in Mexico, so I'm a Mexican immigrant. And uh, that figures into <laughs> a lot of the things in my book. In, through my journalism, I've also dabbled in technology and startups. I've been really curious for quite a while about how we communicate to each other. That's been the thing that keeps pulling me in um, and keeps me just asking lots of questions. 
and and frankly, like raising concerns. And so all these threads led me not just to write the book, I never thought of it that way. And the subtitle is How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Uh, it's also led me to Braver Angels, which is a nonprofit dedicated to depolarizing America through a union of reds and blues, which of course is supposed to be impossible. It's not impossible. It's happening. It's really cool and it's growing. So I'm really excited. Yeah. And a lot of those details you gave tie together, actually, I think we'll tease some of that out. I'd love to ask you about that stuff, but I wanted to start by asking you a question that people always ask me, which is, you know, when I'm talking about star manning and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. and the communication aspect, which we share that passion for communication, people ask, well, what makes you so good at it? So what is it about you, do you think, that makes you uniquely able to be curious or uniquely good at being curious in, in the way that would propel you to be you know, someone who writes a book about it to show other people how to do it. Mm, yeah. I, I also love asking other people that question. And what's funny is that <laughs> when it's asked of me, I, I kind of give a different answer because we're all such complex creatures, right? So right mm. now what's coming to mind is I really have an extraordinary love of good conversation. It's, I just find it to be one of the greatest places I can be. You know, we say that we are in conversation. And, and that means something to me. I am, I am in a place that never existed before and will never exist again. I am in a particular moment with particular people. And whoever that person is, whoever I am in that conversation is going to, it can either come out or not. And part of the fun of conversation to me is how much of the other person can I see? And how much of me can they see? And how much can we learn from the exchange? So that really has been true of me for a long time. One scene that comes to mind right now is I was studying uh, abroad in England and have, had made friends with you know, some other students. And there was one night when we talked and talked and talked. And I remember looking over the shoulder of the girl across from me and seeing the sun come up. And it was this like euphoria, this elation. And we had gone to everything that you go to in big conversation, religion, the meaning of life, you know? So there's something, I just think that people are endlessly mysterious and fascinating and can never be fully known ever. Mm -hmm. And so anytime that we think we know someone, it's tempting to think that we do, but we, we don't fully, we don't fully, we have to know enough to act. We have to know enough to live functional lives. Sure. But there's nothing yeah. more more mysterious than a human being. And for that reason, people's perspectives are just, you know, mm. bottomless, bottomless, like places where we can learn. Yeah. But what what do you think tipped you off? Like what where was there a moment where you went, oh, my God, people are fascinating mm. and I want to dig in more. Or do you did you just yeah. always have that thing about you? One moment that comes to mind there is my first journalism internship. I would have been freshman in college. No. Mm. Yes. Freshman in college. And I was doing an unpaid internship at New Hampshire Public Radio. Uh, and I had a hard time with the technology of it. I think I once interviewed the governor of New Hampshire and never even turned my mic on. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, one thing, the one thing that really stands out from that is I, I got the opportunity to do sort of a longer feature story on something I loved, which was independent cinemas. And there was a movie called My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which had just come out. And it was this like renaissance of independent movies. And there was this beautiful, 
Oh, oh so good. <laughs> Never heard anyway, of that movie. Yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> it was, there was this beautiful independent movie theater in New Hampshire. And I went to it after a showing of my big factory wedding, just to get like audio from people coming out of the movie and to talk to the owner. And so we ended up the owner and myself sitting outside the movie theater, which was this old, like beautiful stone building on the steps. And there, I'll just never forget it. After, I don't even know how long. I really don't. An hour or two, I don't know. I just caught myself looking at him and almost like stepping outside of myself and looking at the both of us and realizing, you know, first that there was this like immense joy in me, but also that there was this immense joy in him. And he was Mm. kind of looking off into the distance. And what he was doing was he was recognizing how interesting his own story was. And he was recognizing how interesting his own story was thanks to my questions. And I I felt like I disappeared into his story. And I was Mm. just in there helping him dig around in his own experiences to, to understand why he loves independent movies so much that he created this business that's good for the community. Why does he love the community so much? Oh man, let me think about that. Why do I? Because this is not exactly like a super lucrative thing. And we would just go into it. And uh, it was it was awesome. And that was the moment where I was like, I got to do this for the rest of my life. Mm. Like, that's it. This is it. So you but you were already getting into journalism, right? So you had this thing about you that you wanted to communicate. Right. So, uh, you know, the reason I'm asking is because my experience is is there were a couple of catalysts. Right. And. One of them is, you know, you're a kid and basically your job is, as a kid, is trying to figure the world out, right? Like that's kind of what you're doing, no matter what you're doing. You know, that's what play is. It's kind of like trying things on um, and asking all these questions, you know, the, the, that meme of kids, you know, constantly just asking why to the point of deconstruction, right? It's because yep. you're trying to figure the world out. Yep. And so that's what I was doing. And I would, I would, I would come upon inconsistencies in adult behavior, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I would ask the question, I would ask the questions that would get me smacked in the head, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it it created in me this thing of like, I don't understand this. Why doesn't this make any sense? Yeah. And I have this compulsion to be like, no, I can't leave it. I have to figure it out. Yeah. Right? So yeah, I'm wondering yeah. if you had that. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I've done research, you know, into curiosity and how it works. And that is curiosity. It's the craving yeah. to fill the gap between, you know, what we, what we know and what we want to know. You know, now that I think about it, you're, you're helping me go back further. And yeah, yeah. a lot of it, frankly, was also, I, you know, was born in Mexico. I came to the States with my family when I was six. And then pretty soon we moved to New Hampshire and I was the only Spanish speaking, you know, Hispanic person in a Catholic school of, uh, it, was, it was like Irish Catholic in this small town, beautiful town in New Hampshire. And, uh, and so there was a lot of there was a lot of intersections, a lot of kind of clashes and a lot of things that I would observe that others might not. And I'll, I'll share one story that I tell in the book, uh, which was in third grade. Uh, a friend of mine, I was at her house playing and I think we were drawing on a chalkboard or something. And back then we all watched Looney Tunes and Speedy Gonzalez it w- was pretty much what we what a lot of my friends knew about Mexico. And I was telling her about uh, Monterrey, the city where I was born in Mexico, and how we would drive around and how you could see the mountains. And she just stopped me and said, they have paved roads in Mexico? Wow. And, and with like severe shock, you know, well, kids, severe shock. Because Peter Gonzalez is all like dirt roads, you know, mice with sombreros <laughs> leaning against the building. Yeah. And, 
And that really stayed with me. I, I still, I still remember that feeling of, oh, that's how you know Mexico. Mm. Wow. I know Mexico so differently. Why? Well, because I've been there. I wasn't mad at her at all. I wasn't, I was surprised, but it was a revelation of, oh, we only know what we've seen. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, of course. What a concept. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and just being like, oh yeah, totally. There's paved roads in Mexico. Yeah. And then we just kept moving, you know, and, <laughs> and that, that memory really sticks with me. But there were lots of moments like that, you know, where I would yeah. encounter people at sort of, you know, not knowing something I knew and, and coming to a place where they became curious because I had introduced some kind of difference that they weren't exposed to before. Mm. And so that was fun, frankly. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing that happened, I remember, is because I was the first Spanish speaking person, you know, at all, is the principal learned on my first day of school that I could count to 100 in Spanish and English. She took me from classroom to classroom and showed me <laughs> off. And like, oh, look, Monica can count to Spanish. Can, Monica, can you count to Spanish for us? <laughs> I remember this. I was in like first grade and, and, and I was, I was like, oh, oh, wow. You know, and again, just kind of facing this sense of there's things I know that others don't. There's things right. they know that I don't. There's things right. we know that others don't. Cool. What can we learn? Um, right. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, so there's a natural kind of just inquisitive mindset that you have a kind of oh, wow, look at this open door. Let me go through it sort of thing. So, so there is a little bit of, yeah, there's a little bit of temperament, right? There's a little bit of just you're wired a certain way, right? But there is also yes. that experience because I had a similar thing of, you know, being a new kid forces you into that paradigm, right? Yeah. You don't know anything. You don't know anybody and everything is new and you have to learn it. So, you know, That's at eight right. years old, moving to a, to a new town and a new school and meeting all these new people, yeah. it's like you're a little kid again, like even younger, obviously, but yeah, it's yeah. like you're back to being, you know, the, the two-year-old asking why a million times because everything just works yeah. differently. Absolutely. Right? And, and you're making me realize that I, I also personally just, I like being around new people, just strangers. It's, it's exciting to me because yeah. here's a lot of unopened boxes and yeah. I don't know who's here and I don't know what, I don't know what'll come out, but there's almost always some kind of fun Oh my gosh, you did what? Like, so did I. And, and it's, <laughs> it's just really cool. It's the way we connect. Yeah. And, the, and there's that, that's the positive aspect to it, right? Mm. Or the positively balanced aspect to it. And then there's yeah. the negatively balanced one, which, which affected me. And I wonder if it affected you, yeah. which is I've been wrong a lot. And every time that I've been wrong, I've felt terrible about it because mm. it was, it was based on me making an assumption, thinking I knew something that I didn't know. And then just having that, you know, just that explosion of like, oh my God, I actually had no idea what I was talking about. I actually had no clue what was actually happening. My perception was so skewed or, or, you know, tainted by my insecurities or, you know, previous experience or whatever that I totally misread this situation. Wow. Right. So here I am in this total, like in the rubble of my assumption. Right. Yeah. And then having to like pick everything back up and go, oh man, I really blew it. And I hate <laughs> that feeling. Right. So, yeah. so, but I hate that yeah. feeling because not just for my own kind of pride, but of course there is that, but it's also because, you know, oftentimes your assumptions make other people feel terrible, right? You said Absolutely. something that 
that landed wrong because you made the wrong assumption, things like that. Yeah. So I would feel really guilty. Yeah. And that would motivate me to have this kind of reflex that I have now of like, uh, the minute I think I'm certain, I pause and I go, I don't know, what am I missing? Let me find every, every other possible explanation. Yes. And I'm curious if you have that too. Do you have that too? Oh yeah. No. And, and it, uh, <laughs> funny story. When I was uh, quite young in journalism, I worked at a small paper in Midland, Michigan. And there was a day when the editor of that paper, Jack, uh, called me into his office sort of for a review and was just really blunt with me. You have accuracy problems. You have precision mm. problems. You know that, right? He said, yeah, I do. And what had happened not that long before is I had, you know, it's a small-ish, you know, town um, community paper, but it's very pr proud and wonderful. And I had gone to cover a story about a nurse, beloved nurse in the community who'd thrown her re retirement party. And I came back and I wrote the story and I sent it, you know, people edited it, it was off. And I learned that I completely got her last name completely wrong in the story. I mean, oh, completely wow. wrong, not even the same first letter, just <laughs> wrong. And so we had to kind of, we, we sort of stopped the presses. A bunch of editions had gone out and we oh, stopped wow. the others to fix it. But that's just one example. There were a bunch of times when I'm writing my story and I'm thinking, oh yeah, you know, I care about these people that I cover. Oh, I remember. Yeah. I don't need to check my notes on that. I got this. Yeah. Her name was so-and-so. Yep, yep. And so, yeah, I, I had a really rude awakening every time that I did that. I hurt people by getting them wrong. I mm -hmm. hurt people. There was one time earlier than that in my maybe second newspaper internship where I got, I got a lot of things wrong in a story about a new business in Dover, New Hampshire, including the spelling of the business's name, Angel. Imagine. Wow. Imagine. <laughs> I, I put a lot of attention into the story. I, again, I cared about it. I care about yeah. it. I, I, I'm a good writer. You know, I, I took pride and they tell the story and I got it wrong. And the owner called me so disappointed and I was so disappointed. So yeah, there's a saying in journalism. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. And you do, <laughs> you, you, you check it out. So I, I have learned the hard way, you know, um, you absolutely can't, you have to be when it comes to other people in particular. Yeah. Don't get them wrong. Don't get right. them wrong, you know, check, check it out. And so, right. yeah, those were the early experiences. And it mm. took, you know, a lot of sort of sleepless nights before big stories, checking, rechecking, I mean, obsessively checking Yeah. Uh, before I finally felt confident that I had developed something of a discipline around checking my assumptions. Yeah. And so that leads perfectly into the topic of the book because, you know, the, the, the antidote to this is maintaining curiosity and, and kind of utilizing curiosity in order to avoid these pratfalls, right? And I think so much of the problem, which you address in the book and we all know about, is that curiosity is kind of just rotting on the vine, right? Like yeah. we're just, <laughs> yeah. we, everyone, is, everyone is so sure that they already know what they need to know. Yeah. Um, but, but your thesis is, no, we don't. We absolutely don't. And we need to break through that. So Absolutely. let's talk about your, your, your SOS concept. Break it down for us. Let's get yeah. uh, the lowdown on that. Yeah. So SOS is the call for help of our society. There's three dynamics in human behavior that can be good and can be bad that have led us to where we are and continue to plague us. Uh, the first is sorting. 
there's been a lot of coverage lately about the, the dynamic of people moving physically to be closer to people who think like they do. Blue zip codes are getting bluer. Red zip codes are getting redder. Uh, as little as just a few years ago, we weren't sure this was happening as much as it was. And there were some good questions and curiosity about, hang on, maybe we're assuming. No, it's happening. Mm -hmm. Othering is the very natural tendency to want to put distance between ourselves and those we deem different. And the social science, which goes back a ways, shows us that it doesn't even take that much difference to trigger othering. It doesn't even take a meaningful difference to trigger othering. We'll do it. Um, we're, we're just, we've evolved to want to belong. And groups give us a lot. And they also cost some things when it comes to trying to build glue uh, among each other. And the last one is siloing. And that has a lot to do with technology, how we communicate, how we discuss, how we converse, <laughs> what, what passes for conversation these days. <laughs> and yeah, and how over time, the, the spaces that we tend to be in and share our thoughts into and get our thoughts inspired by, you know, obviously they, 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 we shape them. We shape them to be more or less comfortable, more or less affirming, you know, obviously it's different for every person, but we end up in silos that over time go deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole where everything outside of it is more easily warped beyond recognition. Uh, so the SOS is we're so divided, we're blinded. You know, we think of division as being toxic in a lot of ways. We don't often think about how it keeps us from seeing the world clearly at all. It keeps us from seeing the world. That should be pretty alarming. You know, we don't see the world. Uh, we don't see other people. And how can we pretend to be informed if we're not informed about people? People are the only agents of power on this planet. Like. We build institutions and structures, sure, but ultimately it's all people and we have right. lost sight of each other. And that's, that's, that's the ultimate, I mean, we got to do something. Yeah. So uh, here's the thing is, is so many people will hear that and, and they, I have, they have one of two responses that I've seen so far. One is to say, well, that's always been the case. We've always been like this. It's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And the other is that it's not actually true, that it's not actually, we're not actually that siloed. We're not actually that, you know, it's not, the polarization is, is kind of like a, a not a moral panic, but a kind of, you know, being exaggerated mm -hmm. by the media mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you're getting, yeah. you're getting this idea. It's true. And, and then, you know, there are people who are kind of incentivized to stoke it. And then there are people who benefit from constantly bringing it up. Yeah. Um, and where do you fall on that? What do you think? Yeah. Do you think that, you know, is there a kind of idyllic past where yeah. people used to argue in better faith or they used to argue better or disagree better? Yeah. Or is this kind of just always, you know, us chicken littling? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think those two criticisms are are very valid and very true. And they're different mm -hmm. sides of they're, they're turning the idea and looking at it from another angle. Have we always been this way? Of course. SOS has been around since we've been around, you know? Uh, so yes, we've, we've always been this way to each other, of course. Uh, but I would argue that there's a lot of dynamics that are interacting in a very unique way and that it is not our imaginations when we feel the urgency uh, around the particular uh, toxicity in our own families uh, and our communities. We're not, we're not making this up. This is real. 
Um, now, have, has America been divided before? Really? Yes. 700,000 <laughs> people died in the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah, we've been divided before right. and we've overcome it. But, you know, but we can't we can't um, we can't try, we can't just dismiss the effect of how we communicate. In fact, I think one of the issues today is that we often dismiss the effect of how we communicate. We think it's really right. not a big deal. But right. but I, I think it is quite a big deal because everything is ultimately how we think and interpret the world. What happens in the world matters. Our interpretation of what happens in the world matters more because our interpretations mm -hmm. mobilize our actions and our interpretations yes. are about our thoughts and our thoughts are about what we're what's incoming and what's incoming is coming from social media is coming from media and is coming from our real lives. Sure. Now, it's to the right. second point about it's not that bad. That's true. And I do not want to be catastrophizing here. There's yeah. so many ways in which it's not that bad. And you, you know what I mean? Like where multiple things yeah. are true. You can look at this at many angles. You know, it's not that bad. Every time I talk to an actual human being, every time. Mm. It's always worse when I see it through the filters of, of the mediated and story, storytelling, you know, just the, the stories that we tend to tell. Absolutely mm. make, it a, make it a lot worse. Am I implicated in that? Sure. Absolutely. I just wrote a book, you know, where, where the first part of it is red alert. I stand by that, but I absolutely am open to, I, I, I think it's absolutely right that it's not that divided for everybody. It's not that divided when you actually talk to people. And that's what the rest of the book is about. Yeah. And that's the thing I think is that both things can be true mm -hmm. and both things are true at once, right? Absolutely. Because so much of our common project, you know, Fair's project, Braver Angels' project, and then just individually yours and mine is, is that we're actually not that different from one another fundamentally right. and that we're actually not that far apart. And that when you boil down to, you know, the real core of things, we all really basically want the same things for ourselves and for the people we love. Yeah. And then that just starts to extend outward to everyone when you realize there's a kind of fundamental connection that we need yeah. each other. Right. So, so it's, that's definitely true, but I do think it's also true that we're living in a, in a very strange and unique time for communication because, yeah. you know, there you are in Seattle and I'm here in New York city and we otherwise would never have met each other. Right. If not for right. this technology. Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, Yes. So we're having a conversation that was impossible even like 50 years ago. Right. Right. Like how would we have met? It would have been a bizarre circumstance for us to have met. And then a mm hundred -hmm. years ago, almost, almost completely, completely impossible, impossible, unthinkable. Right. Yeah. So yeah. there's something unique going on. Mm -hmm. And I think that something that is overlooked often is that the context you live in as someone who's in Seattle, you know, hanging out with other people who live in Seattle next to you, right? Mm -hmm. That context is different than the context I'm in, which is in New York. There are New Yorkers around me and all that kind of stuff. We use words differently. We have different mm -hmm. turns of phrase. We have different slang. We have different, you know, just local kind of customs mm -hmm. and idioms and things, right? And so do you. Yeah. And then there are moments where mine and yours clash, right? Yeah. So you use the same word as I use, but we mean different things and those things smack against each other. But there isn't that moment where there's oftentimes isn't that moment where I understand, oh, wait a minute, she's not a New Yorker, yeah. so she might mean something else, right. Right? right? I feel like so much of our social media sort of interactions with each other is kind of 
everyone walking around with their own personal dictionary and holding everyone else to their own personal dictionaries, definitions of things. That's right. Without actually realizing that everyone else has their own dictionary too. Yeah. Or or potentially ignoring it. I, I, sometimes I can't tell. Yeah, that's true. You know, Mm. yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think that it's one of the consequences of technology exploding expression is that there is so much more room for different communities to evolve their own languages and different subcultures to evolve their own languages. And that's beautiful. That's great. But it, but it literally like made exponentially greater and more complicated this challenge of, of speaking to each other, of being heard right. by each other. So again, it's not to diminish. It's been awesome, right? You, we see different communities. You mentioned local, you know, in the before times, right? Local right. meant geography. It was the only way people could be together. That's obliterated yeah. now. And local is really, I don't know, any old community. Just draw a circle around people for any reason and they can connect meaningfully online. And there it is. That's yeah. your local. And that, and that, I mean, imagine how many thousands, millions of, of different kinds of communities build. And again, over time, some of those smaller groups form into larger groups. The languages start to combine. But, oh gosh, here's this other, you know, group of groups and their languages are even, they're growing more and more and more different. At the same time, our media is uh, having a grand old time economically, so long as they can (laughs) find a really narrow audience that they can precisely define. And so it is economically beneficial to a lot of media to to have an audience that is, yeah, that they know that they can predict. And that means, well, they're going to speak their language. Uh, It is, it is less uh, economically beneficial to to beneficial to most media to be able to speak many languages mm. that you're not going to find a lot of incentive for that. So that, that's the, that's the pickle we're in, you know? Right. And again, it's not, it's not inherently bad. It's just a challenge is the way I see it. Right. But it's yeah. yeah. And, and you know, of course what I say to that is, okay, let's get curious, right? Let's not walk into these <laughs> situations going, Oh my gosh, they reacted that way to the word I used. That's because of this. They right. suck. I'm done. You don't know that. You don't know what they mean. Mm. And, uh, you know, obviously the discursive climate online also makes us feel like we don't have time to clarify. And, yeah. and I have a whole section of the book, too, that's about get clear. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, well, let's. Well, yeah. So let's go. Yeah, to that let's too. let's let's get into curiosity. Let's mm-hmm. let's. So so we have the SOS. We have this kind of, you know, call to alarm. Uh, and what do we do? How do we how do we fix this? What is your recommendation? How do you break this down for people? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it yourself earlier. You know, it's not a new idea. It's asking, what are we missing? That's the, that's the main and first thing. When you ask, what am I missing? You presume you're missing something. And that's revolutionary. Mm. That's the revolution. Uh, when you believe you're missing something, then you wonder what that might be. Then suddenly the questions that you could ask reveal themselves to you. And the assumptions that you are making reveal themselves to you. So I talk about how certainty is the arch enemy of curiosity. Because when you, yeah. when you think you know, you won't think to ask. Assumptions are this uh, aggravating thing. They help the world go round, right? I mean, we have to make assumptions all the time. We can't just stop and ask yeah. questions all the time. It's dumb. Uh, but what assumptions do is they take those gaps between what we know and what we want to know. And they cover it up so that we think we know what we think we know. Uh, and so, yeah, we need, we need to, we need to get inner awareness of 
where we actually do not know. And that's going to take a little bit of humility, but not as much as people think. It's really just an instant. It's really yeah. just, it's really just asking yourself, what am I missing? And believing that you're missing something, that it is highly likely in this polarized climate, if you are talking to someone who disagrees with you, that you are missing something. Mm -hmm. So go find out what that might be. You know, go get clear. Uh, and that that's really where it begins, because then the gaps reveal themselves. The questions reveal themselves. And then once right. you start asking questions, the other beautiful thing, too, is it can become a little easier for things not to feel quite so personal. And we're often not very honest about the psychology of this. You know, what, yeah. what is difficult about it isn't I don't think is the the technicalities of doing this. It's the fear we have of losing ourselves. Mm. That's what's difficult. But that's, we can, we can confront that. We can do something about that. Well, so that, this is, this is great. I wanted to ask you about this because up until reading your book, I would have said that the, the prime enemy is ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. It's the things you, 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 you're ignorant about, the things mm -hmm. other people are ignorant about. Those are the problems. And what we need mm -hmm. is to illuminate those things for ourselves mm -hmm. and for each other, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, certainty is, I guess it's tied to that, right? Because certainty is saying, no, I'm not ignorant at all. I totally know what I'm talking about. And, yeah. Right. And you I know, know you're ignorant. Right. Yeah. And so, so there's a tension there, but they also kind of play this kind of, you know, flip sides of the coin for each other, ignorance yeah. and certainty, because if you're certain, you'll never know whether you're ignorant. Right. Yeah. 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 But, You'll never know what you're missing. Yeah. So let, so I'm curious, let's talk about it like practically because, mm -hmm. you know, just yesterday I was interacting with somebody on Twitter, the Thunderdome of discourse. And, you know, um, they made a point basically saying, you know, something to the effect of, because I was saying, so I was saying something about how, you know, there's plenty of dishonesty and bad behavior to go around and that it's not exclusive to any one side of anything. Yeah. And, and that I try my best to point it out no matter where I see it. Right. I'm yeah. doing the best I can. I'm going to be blind to stuff and I'm going to be biased, but I'm trying yeah. to, to do it that way. And their response was something to the effect of, you know, there's a false equivalence here. Like the striking that balance is, is totally wrong because on the one hand, you have people advocating for social justice. And then on the other hand, you have people who want to dismantle democracy as we know it. Right. Mm. <laughs> and so then mm. I said, you know, and then I said, well, when you frame it that way, of course, striking yeah. the balance seems crazy because yeah. who would be against advocating for social justice yeah. and who would be for dismantling democracy as we know it? Only terrible people. Okay. And their response was, yes, that's what they are. Yeah. Terrible people. Right? Yeah, no, no. And that's the problem, right? I feel like that's exactly the thing you're zeroing in on. So what would you do in that scenario? How would you jump in there? So if somebody were to say, were to say that, yeah. Yeah. Imagine that say, well, same this thing. The, this is the yeah. framework. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would ask questions. I, I would just okay. begin by asking questions um, and, and sharing my own experience. Mm -hmm. So gosh, uh, yeah, let's see. So, so if somebody puts it that way, I think I would begin honestly by, you know, roughly kind of saying almost exactly what you said about like, well, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, you're right. You know, <laughs> you're right. When you frame it that way, of course. Yeah. Right. That makes a lot of sense, but I got to tell you, that's not the way it looks to me. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you more about how it looks to me? And I would ask the question 
because it can help in a conversation to get buy-in when somebody goes, yeah, I'll listen. Mm-hmm. And if they go, okay, yeah, tell me, tell me how it looks to you, you yeah. know, and I can share, I can, I can share stories. I can, I can share stories about many conservatives and I've talked to, you know, Republicans I've talked to several of whom have a lot of doubts about the election and, and you know, they, they hold those beliefs and in good faith, at least it looks to me who absolutely would defend our democracy, that that's not the motivation behind their concerns whatsoever, that the way they see it, it's the other side that's hurting democracy. Right. So, so I would question, I would just put into question the assumption that there are people against democracy. Right. I don't think that that's what's motivating the the very you know concerning uh, division and confusion uh, that's going on that we're going to have to solve. Yeah, and then as far as social justice, right? The the presumption in that binary that was laid out was that yeah, the people who fight for social justice are all on one, just happen to all be on one political side or something like that. I would clarify whether that's what that person meant. I would I would ask a lot right. of clarifying questions first. When you mm-hmm. say social justice, what do you mean? You know, I would ask these questions. And then if it's what I think it might be, um, then I would, yeah, I would get into that. You know, I, I would, I would share stories again about people who, who, who might believe the things, people who might fit the category that, that they see as terrible people who I have interacted with and, and who are pushing for social justice in a lot of wonderful ways in their own lives. So at least something that I think could, could be defined as social justice. And I would, I would present my definition and and have it open for discussion and just ask again, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you mean when you say that? What to you is an ultimately just society? Who is heard? Who is fought for? You know, who is protected right. in, a, in an ultimately just society? And maybe the conversation would go there. We'd, we'd mm-hmm. reach that level of um, fundamental value. And, and I would ask a lot about what are you ultimately concerned about here? Because that binary, right. it's compelling. And I've been there and I hear you. Like what, right. what is, what is fueling that for you? You know, and they might talk about, again, I'm guessing, but they might talk about power. All right. right. Let's talk about power. That's a great conversation. Let's yeah. talk about how power shows up in race and in class and in wealth and in geography and in all the ways that it shows up education. Let's talk about power. So, yeah, I don't know. I think, mm-hmm. I think that that would be the, the beginning of a really fascinating uh, set of exchanges. And how do you get, well, you mentioned buy-in, right? But how do you get that buy-in? Because sometimes, you know, people might say, no, you're, which is kind of the response that I got, which is, you know, I replied basically in a similar way to what you just laid out. Um, and the response I got was like, you're naive. Like, this is naive, you know? And while you're busy trying to sing Kumbaya, which is how they always characterize it, um, they're going to destroy everything. So yeah. we, you know, it snaps back to the binary because of the certainty that we talked about. Yeah. I should ask what so, platform, what platform was this exchange on? Oh, this was on Twitter. So Twitter, you said? Like, That's right. It yeah. was all Twitter. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's already, yeah, it's already like, I mean, getting buy-in difficult. on Twitter for, for uh, mm-hmm. a deeper discussion when there's already distrust on both ends, you know, cause you were saying, you were just saying, you know, they always do that. There's distrust right. on both ends here. So yep. yeah, chasing buy-in on something like Twitter for something like that. It, I don't even know really ultimately if it's always, <laughs> it's not always worth it. It's worth it if you've built up yeah. some trust. So, you know, but, but to step aside from that for a moment, right. people can't hear unless they're hurt, unless they feel hurt, they won't do it. Mm-hmm. 
People can tell when someone's pretending to hear. People can tell when we're just echoing platitudes. Um, it has become somewhat popular in my in my experience, you know, to begin a very like resentful response by saying, I hear you, but you know, right. did you did you hear them? What does that mm-hmm. mean? Are you sure? Uh <laughs> yeah, you know, hearing, listening, I think, takes time. Uh, it's not usually something you can do when you just read what is it now, 280 characters? It it takes time. And for a lot of people, you know, it's too much time, especially on social media. Patience, who, who has it? Yeah. Especially when we think the world's on fire. You know, it's for, the world's on fire for this reason or for that reason. But it's on fire. I don't have time. I don't have time to listen to you. Besides, again, yeah. I already know what I need to know. I'm in battle mode because I have to be in order to make this world right. what it needs to be. And and I, I, that's a great instinct, right? So I begin in that place of generosity. It's like, Good. I'm so glad that people are motivated to make a better world. And if that's at the base of a lot of these conflicts, good. Mm. That's wonderful. You know? Mm. Yeah. But I, but I turn, I turn more to fear is, is, is again, like, (laughs) yeah, you you were talking about ignorance, maybe being the bigger, the bigger issue. But for me, man, fear, fear and certainty are are the biggest Mm. to me. Um, And we have to tackle that because I think a lot of the grandstanding, a lot of the confidence and the certainty is about protecting something. Mm-hmm. It's about protecting. Well, ourselves. also fear is kind of, it's all a kind of, you know, a big spaghetti ball, right? Because fear is, is the kind of thing that propels one to be certain or to want to be certain. Right. Right. Because right. Right. uncertainty is scary. It's extremely um, scary. It is, it is. Yeah. It's, we don't acknowledge that either, right? Like uncertainty is terrifying for anyone. Um, but we pretend, I don't know. I don't want to pretend that it's too easy. It's not easy. It's not easy, <laughs> but I just think that the benefit is profound. Of but you have reframed uncertainty for yourself. That's the thing is that the uncertainty kind of bumps against curiosity. Curiosity yeah. is a kind of sublimation of uncertainty, right? It it's is. like, Ooh, I don't know that. Isn't that great? Now yeah. I get to find out. Right? To that's find kind out. of, right. That's yeah. kind of your attitude. Right. But, but yeah. the, I think, maybe the more common human instinct is I don't know about that. I need to hide the fact that I don't know about it. I need right, to, I need right, to, right. I need to pretend that I do know about it because it's too scary to not know about it. Well, and I need to save right? face, you know, cause you've yeah. got to save face. You've got to protect your standing with, uh, with your community and with yourself. I, again, I'm not some Zen master of this. I mean, there are right. so many times on social media or anywhere I hold back, you know, I don't share yeah. what I really think because I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how people are going to react. Uh, maybe I'll find <laughs> another way. I'll speak privately to somebody later. And I feel a little cowardly just because, yeah. well, you know, I, I want to take my own medicine. It's not always possible. We know this, mm. you know, courage is not something you can just like put on the cape all day, every day. I'm not even sure it really comes down to courage. I don't think it does actually. Um, mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. There's yeah. definitely some courage to put yourself out there, but oh, it's, yeah. I think, I think maybe you've gone to a certain point where now you see the benefits so clearly that you wouldn't dream of going backwards. Right. I I always liken it to, um, to, you know, changing your diet, right. There, there's, there's a sense in which, you know, if you've always eaten junk food, you don't really know how bad you actually feel because it's normal. But then when you change your diet after a couple of weeks, you're like, Oh my God, I have so much more energy. Oh, I feel yeah. I feel better. Like my skin looks better, all this stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go, Oh, wow. I never actually realized how bad I, I was feeling just every yeah. day. Right. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I was eating junk. 
So I feel like it's a similar sort of transition there. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes and back you're to- on the you're on the other end of that. Yeah. You, you were yeah. saying, you know, in the beginning about, about, well, you know, maybe we're not that divided at all, you know, and, and there's a circular, there's a really interesting circular relationship here because it takes a little bit of suspension of fear sometimes to get curious enough to ask one more question, to get into a potentially uncomfortable situation, to seek buy-in, to go deeper with someone who you're not sure about or whatever. Um, it mm. takes a little bit of, you know, reduction of fear, but, but I, in some ways, I think that the biggest benefit is even more reduction of fear. It, and so, so it does become a cycle. Like we're all yeah. saying the world is really scary and that we're exaggerating it. Okay. Let's stop exaggerating it. How do we stop exaggerating it? By seeing what's really there. How do we see what's really there? By talking to actual real people beyond the filters <laughs> and our assumptions. How do we do right. that? Well, in these ways, you know, it gets harder. Yes. It's harder now because we're all not talking to each other very intentionally, which is sucks, <laughs> mm -hmm. but like, let's reverse that. Um, and that's what's, that's what's happened to me. Um, it's what's happened to a lot of people I've talked to is that the main takeaway from a conversation across difference that manages to be illuminating and they're not, they, they don't, they won't always, for sure, you know, but when they do manage to be illuminating, one of the biggest, I hear this at Brave Angels, I hear this everywhere, my own family. One of the biggest takeaways is, oh, I didn't realize that it came from these, that it came from these couple of places that actually make sense to me. Now I see where they're coming from mm. and I still hate, maybe I still hate it. I still hate where they landed, God, but, but look at where they're coming from. Oh, that, that makes sense to me. And suddenly, suddenly your assumption about it comes from evil in their heart. It comes from a rejection of good values. It comes from a desire to hurt others. Mm -hmm. I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> If, if you, if you get curious, even if that is the effect of the behavior and it might be, it absolutely might be, you know, there's harmful right. beliefs out there. There's the beliefs that result in harmful behaviors. Sure. <laughs> but, but that's not, that, that's, that's, that's just not that often the origin or the motivation within a person's own heart. And when you can see that it, yeah, it becomes easier again to see like, oh, wait a second. We are all people. We could maybe figure this out if we tried, maybe right. differently, maybe. Yeah. And so it introduces hope, it reduces fear, it makes the world less SOS-y and less scary for yeah. you when you do this mm -hmm. as a practice. It will do that for you. And that's the ultimate thing is like, you want, you want a great benefit? How about walking around in a world that isn't that scary? How does that feel? Yeah. Pretty good? You think you'd be more yeah. creative? Do you think you'd be happier? <laughs> You know, do you think that maybe like things would be possible that don't seem possible yeah. today? That's what this offers. So that, and that's the crux of kind of the, the call to action in the book, right? Is, yeah. is getting people to see that, that there's a disarming quality to curiosity, Yeah. right? When you approach with curiosity, you know, the scales kind of fall away yeah. and you, you get closer to the real thing, right? But again, you know, I keep going back to this problem because the buy-in is so important. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and the thing yeah. is that the curiosity has to be sincere. Mm -hmm. If you fake it, you know, you might get a couple of steps in, but yeah. eventually your, you know, your your plans will be revealed. It'll be yeah. it'll be too obvious that you're not actually asking questions. You're not actually yeah. digging into to find the person. Um, you're just kind of being tactical, right? So 
how do you, how do you, how do you help people sort of foster this sincere, genuine curiosity? If that's not something that is part of their temperament, which seems like it is for you. And it's, it is kind of for me, like I just had this desire to understand what if other people just don't want to do that? Right, right. And and that makes total sense. I mean, we've we've talked a lot, you know, we began by saying like, oh, Monica, what makes you so curious, right? And what concerns me about that is because it it starts to feel like this is only for the people who, whatever, whatever naturally curious means. I don't even think I really believe that concept, but. Right. right. But yeah, oh, the people who are already in this are going to be the people who are in this, but it's not for me. I'm not good at this. I can't do this. I'm not already like naturally inclined. I, I think that's all a myth. And, and I talk about this in the book that this is not about swallowing whole an entire like internal transformation and script. That's not it at all. The, the thing that will make a difference is just one more question, one little step. If you can just do that in one conversation and it leads to five minutes of a little curiosity, great, good enough. That's good for your whole day or week. That's fine. It, mm. This is not it, this is not an advanced course at all. And so, <laughs> you know, and in the book, I talk about some of these extremely simple steps. You know, some of them, like one that I love and I do myself all the time is, is asking myself, can I believe it when I read an article that presents an opinion that I disagree with? It is entirely me versus myself. And I'm listening to a perspective that someone else has put out there, thoughtfully, I hope. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't interact with that person, but I can sense and notice how that perspective, as I read it, lands with me. And when I notice, when I become aware of my brain, there's even, there's physical sensations to thought. And I can, I can sense like, oh, you know, something in my heart goes, when I feel angry about something they said. Okay, cool great. Stop. Why are you angry? Well, you know, because of this, because I just think that that's tied to this other thing. Are you sure? Are you sure that that's what it's tied to? No, I'm not. That's right. You're not sure, Monica. Keep reading. Fine. You know? So like that's exercising curiosity while you are reading some static opinion out in the world. Now, again, the goal is not for me to agree with that opinion. The goal is for me to just, even if I do it once or twice in an article, that's enough. I, I have practiced being aware of when my assumptions come into my interpretation. And then I question my own certainty. Am I sure? I don't know. You know, and sometimes like, uh, no, I draw a lot of evidence. Wow. This person is telling me what is motivating them and I don't like it, but okay. All right. Well, can I try to see it? At least try to see it from their perspective. That's really the goal. Can I see it from their perspective? Usually with thoughtful opinions, I can, or it just makes me go, all right, interesting. I've learned something cool. So that's one Mm -hmm. really simple thing you can do with yourself. You don't even need another person. Now, when you have another person, you know, the, among my favorite questions to ask is it already came up and I can't tell you how useful it's been in my whole journalism career. It's just, it's as simple as what are you concerned about? You know, you, you bring up an issue, whatever it is, and it's tough. Can you just, and there's a million ways to ask this. So what ultimately bothers you about it? And, and what's cool about that question is you, you put the focus not on the idea, but on the person. And in some ways, my whole book is about that. You know, as long as we put the center of gravity on ideas, we're not going to see each other, but we put the center of gravity on people, Mm -hmm. then more becomes possible because we understand where people are coming from, which will help us see where we all are and where we all could be going. So you make it about people. What concerns you about this? And when you say that, you also, you have now believed something in your mind. You have now presumed 
that this person has a unique perspective. This person has a unique story. And that will help you peel away from whatever monstrous perversion of the group this person belongs to that you've formed in your own mind. Because that, that anytime, right? We know this. Anytime that we think something is true for all people of a certain ilk, we're wrong. Right. <laughs> right yeah. then and there, you know you're missing something. That's just not mm-hmm. true. It's never true. You know, even yeah. if, sure, there's some kind of general common denominator, fine. It's probably not what you think it is especially if you've not talked to a lot of people in that group. How can you think you know that? You can't, you can't know. So, so yeah, so if you ask what concerns you, you make it about them and, and, and their story. And it's also a question that is not easily, uh, a lot of times we imbue judgments in our questions, right? How can you believe something so racist? Right. Right. We imbue judgment in our question. So a person immediately has their guard up and they're answering a question, but they're also just need to defend themselves and they don't know how. And we haven't like been honest about the accusation that just, that just, you know, got communicated. So, so what concerns you is also I'm collecting information. That's all I'm doing. I'm not judging. I'm collecting information. If you can, if you can just restrain judgment long enough to ask that question once, that's not hard. That right. is not a difficult thing to do. Anyone can do. Yeah. And I guess the the pushback would be besides, you know, well, I already know the answer to that. It's because they're terrible or whatever. Yeah. Right. The the other pushback that I can imagine that is unconscious is this idea of like, I don't want to give any kind of credence to this this idea or this opinion that I already think I already know it's terrible. So what you're asking me to do is to kind of go on this, you know, suicide mission kind of where I'm allowing this terrible thing to, to propagate and multiply because you, you know, you want me to be civil, right. And then then we get into the whole civility porn thing. Yeah. Right. So what would you say there in terms of how to get people over that hump? Right. Yeah, well, this is where we come back to sort of the context of the conversation. If it's, you know, if you happen to be a journalist and you have four minutes to inform people, right, and you have a guest coming on and that guest is spewing things that you just don't think there's evidence there, your responsibility is to, you know, get 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 to a place where you can be, you know, whatever's coming across is is responsibly shared to your audience. Sure, not that many of us have. Anyway, so so one thing is that, uh, but but it's about containment. If you're having a public conversation and then, then yeah, I understand the concern about platforming what could be harmful ideas, but I, but I just put platforming and harmful in quotes because there's a lot more to ask about those two concepts. Okay. Like they're complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but this to me is the beauty of a private conversation. This to me is the beauty of a contained conversation. So if you worry about the harm that could happen and what could be infected, right? The only thing that could be infected if you are talking individually to someone else across difference is you. So then the question becomes, why do you think you'll become infected? How do you think that that infection would even transpire? And then my question eventually, you know, would be, why do you think you're so vulnerable to infection? Mm. Why do you have such little faith in your own constitution? Right. What are you truly afraid of? Is it, is it, here's something that I, you know, again, this is all speculative, but like my own sometimes theory is that 
because we have become so accustomed to thinking that so many people are monsters, it makes it easier for us to think that we could become a monster in an instant ourselves. And we can't. That is not how this works. That's not right. how opinions work. Uh, you can't, you know, I think of the, the analogy to COVID, right? You can't, an opinion is not a virus that just hits you and you're sick. That's not, that's not how opinions work. You mm. are a container. You have roots. You have roots that go far down into your childhood. You are a person with a story and a set of experiences and values. If something comes along and changes your mind in an instant, which is certainly possible and has happened, it's because there was fertile ground in who you are. Right. That's why it, that's why it happens. Are you afraid that you are fertile ground for something that you find abhorrent? Mm -hmm. Why would you think you are? Right? What if what if you could turn all that around and say that actually, you know, by your asking questions and getting curious about someone else, you are not you you will not be infected at all and instead it's an exchange that could illuminate wonderful things for both of you and establish a relationship not to mention of curiosity where even if this other person does you know does hold something that just seems whoa right man if they're heard by you chances are that's not a frequent experience for them if they're heard by you and and somehow you know yeah you get to have an exchange that's meaningful and they open up and you open up to them what if later they get curious about this idea that they hold and wonder, I don't know about that anymore. That conversation mm -hmm. with so-and-so is still with me. Maybe I should talk to them again. I'm not saying that happens often. Right. But isn't the chance of that happening better than the absolute impossibility of it ever happening? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's, it's um, there's that. There's that part of it, right? Which is basically what I'm, what I'm thinking is that there is no downside to engaging this way. I don't think because that. if if let's say you engage with somebody whose ideas you think are terrible, but the engagement ends up persuading you, mm -hmm. then obviously there was something persuasive there that you hadn't thought about. Exactly. And you're you know whether you're wrong now by by being persuaded, that's still part of the journey you need to go on. Right. In your understanding, right? The fact right. is, you were persuaded. You can't you can't really control whether yeah. you're persuaded or not. Right. Like you if can't. something makes sense, you can't. It just does, right? People like, think we choose our right. opinions. We do not choose our opinions. Right. Exactly. Yeah, they yeah. arrive. They arrive and we can either be honest about them or not. Right. Exactly. And and in that way, it's kind of like, well, you know, it's it's a similar sort of phenomenon as anybody who's watching or listening to this and they understand English, they know what I'm saying. They can't not understand what I'm saying. In, in literal terms, like the words are coming into their brain, their brain's processing it. I know how to do this. I know what he's saying. It's a similar thing, right? If, if an argument just hits you and suddenly you go, oh, wow. Yeah. You can't help that. Oh, wow. Moment that no, I never can't. thought of it that way. Moment. That's, and I that. never thought of it that way. Moment. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so there's that, right. Which is just automatically better for your growth. But then there's also the other person who, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that if you have strong convictions your goal is to do something with them and to convince other people that this is the mm -hmm. right way to go about things mm -hmm. so that your ultimate goals can be realized, right? Mm -hmm. And what mm -hmm. better way to do that than to engage with those people and get them curious. So yeah. it's not even just curiosity for yourself. It's 
fostering curiosity in others. Yes. And making which, that which kind again, of feedback. Which you can't control. And I hear this a lot from people. Mm-hmm. I hear this a lot. I have been curious. I was in that conversation. I asked all the questions. They didn't ask me anything. They just talked mm-hmm. at me the whole time, right? And people take that experience as a sign of failure of the whole project. This is obviously worthless. Mm-hmm. This obviously doesn't, doesn't help, doesn't do anything. I put myself out there. I got nothing in return. And, um, and what I say to that is, it's again, the sense of urgency that we feel, the sense of um, this, this, this false idea that, that things happen in our minds in an instant. They don't. Yeah. It's time. Chances are, if that's what happened, that other person was desperate to be heard for some reason. You don't know why, but they were desperate. Who knows, right? And so they talked at you. Maybe they were angry. When we're angry, ugh, we want to get that out. Anger is data too. We can learn from that. It means right. that there's something they're protecting. It means, you know, it, it, it means that you've hit a nerve. Okay. Right. Why? What's underneath that? Right. And it's true. Like not everyone will be, not everyone will be naturally fascinated by, by, by being the detective on that. That's okay. That's okay. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can just say, well, okay. You know, that, that whole hour and a half was just that person talking at me. And then you can ask yourself, what did I learn? Right. right. Because if, if after an hour and a half, you go, all I learned is that they didn't ask me any questions. You weren't listening. Yeah. You weren't That's listening. That's very true. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about a kind, the kind of larger discourse, right? We're, we're touching on it now. Um, but so we kind of been, we've been keeping it more or less to the individual and maybe the individual directly in front of them, but there's the yeah. larger context and there's the larger kind of group dynamics and in-group yeah. dynamics and out-group dynamics that are, you know, kind of, that are totally influencing things and they're kind of in the background, sort of, you yeah. know, just kind of bubbling and happening, right? So there's a, a, a New York Times op-ed that went out a few days ago as of this recording um, by Emma Champ. And mm-hmm. basically what she was saying in her op-ed was, you know, I'm, I'm noticing this culture of self-censorship where people kind of, you know, when, when it's about certain topics, we speak in hushed tones, we close the door, we're worried about speaking up. And then she talks about classmates that, you know, actively lie about what they actually believe or think on certain topics because they don't want to deal with whatever the response is that either will happen or they think will happen. Right. There's some fuzziness there. Um, but that is so much of what's powering this kind of failure of discourse too, is just this, this in-group mentality and, and this out-group thing of, I could never be a part of them. I need to stay a part of, them, of us. Yeah. And so that means I need to speak in this way or say these things. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious about your, just, your general just uh, impressions about that op-ed and and what you think it says about what's going on, because there's also the the response to the op-ed and how it, how it kind of affirms the op-ed, but also mm-hmm. kind of, you know, people contradicting it. Um, yeah. So how, where yeah. do you, where do you, where do you stand on it? What yeah. I, I think about this, unfortunately has become one of those pieces of content that relaunches a script. Mm. And, you know, she, she's talking about her own experience uh, in, in college at the University of Virginia. She, she gives anecdotes about classrooms and how she feels and what concerns her about the educational experience at her, her university. She is sharing her experiences, 
her concerns. She's detailing it in story, right? So, okay, that we now have that. We now have that story. What it triggers uh, that is most visible is, this, it, and I, well, it'll get complicated in a minute, but is a kind of script <laughs> where people go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm on the side that goes, go, Emma. And other people go, I'm on the side where if Emma gets too much traction, the things I care for will not, will not move forward. And so I need to be against Emma. Mm-hmm. which is all unfortunate to me because she, she just told her story. She just told her story, her interpretation, and she offered it to the world. And that's a beautiful thing. That is, that is, that is an offering. It is an offering into a conversation. I talk about this in the book, you know, that when we share our stories, we think about it as like, I'm talking, I'm saying something, hear me. But it's also, I am offering something into in a conversation. That's what she did. It took courage to do it. And that's great. And I also, as I read it, I did that thing that I shared earlier where like read with curiosity, right? So she talked about a moment in the classroom where she, she said that, what did she say? Correct me if I'm wrong, that white women could criticize um, a, yeah. uh, a, a, a ritual suicide uh, in, in, in a culture. And, and it, it mm-hmm. just, you know, it, it got, people got angry and, and de- debated her uh, on that. But, but I don't want to mischaracterize it. But, but she felt that it was more than just a debate, that it was, she felt this sort of chilling, this exclusion, this, that is not, we don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. We don't even want to allow that. And what, what I noticed was she gave her prescription of that very certainly from her own experience. But I took that as that's her experience. That's how she felt. We don't know. Someone else in that moment would have felt differently. We don't know. Now, I have seen a lot of evidence, right? I mean, I've talked to a lot of professors in college. And we know what's happening. We know what's happening. We, to, me, to me, it right. is enough evidence to know that we have dialed the cost up way too high for people to be honest about their concerns and their opinions on college campuses. I believe that to be true. I am open to other interpretations, but I think that's true. And so. That's the ultimate offering of Emma's story is let's go all the way down to the root. What do we want the college experience to be? What do we want young people, really anybody, but in these educational environments, what do we want them to be to, to what do we want that to feel like and to be like, you know, there's people who feel like Emma felt in her situation. Uh, there's people who feel very differently and feel aggrieved for other reasons. Right. But at the end of the day, I think everybody wants the best college experience and they find themselves at opposite ends of, of divides within classrooms. And then they go to whatever tool they think is going to ultimately lead to the best outcome, which for some people is, and has been, you've got to shut that down. Let's shut that down right now. What she just said is terrifying. Mm-hmm. That's what we've been fighting against. But, but I would say, be curious. What did she just say? What did she just say? And then what do right. you think it means? Two different things, right? So like, so I would say, wouldn't it be cool if in that classroom, the professor said, okay, hang on, hang on, Emma, thank you for sharing that. All right, everybody, can we, can we, can we sit with this a second? Emma, can you tell us where that comes from for you? Where, where does that come from? Uh, uh, t- you know, tell, tell us where that opinion comes right. from. You know, and the person who is angry 
I, I, you know, I can tell that this is passionate. Okay, great. What are you concerned about? Mm-hmm. Where does that, what concerns are behind your anger? Well, I'm concerned about this and that, right? right? But if the professor or the students themselves can lead each other in, let's slow this down, right? Let's slow it down. Let's not allow this to become about the ideas and what, which ones are good or bad necessarily. Let's start with, there are students in this room who are now in an intense discussion. Great. Let's learn from it. Let's cook with it. There's heat. Good. Let's cook with that heat. And I think that professors, you know, many of them already do it. There's ways you can make sure that the climate in your classroom is one of not just learning what the right or wrong ideas are, but learning who's in that room and what experiences they bring to bear and what concerns they can surface and what I never thought of at that way moments everyone can have as a result of that discussion. I'm not saying it's Mm. easy, but I do agree with Emma that I think she said somewhere in there. And I actually like, I was on the fence about this for a while, but she said, she said, this won't get solved by just encouraging students to be courageous. And at first I was like, Oh, but but what if, I don't know. I mean, what if more, what if more people really were courageous? And then I really sat with it and I thought about it. I was like, I see your point. I see your point because we can't have, you know, the leaders of classrooms are professors. And if they're scared too, we're lost. So, so, you know, we, we do need, we need a different way. And, and I would say, you know, people talk about intellectual diversity, right? Mm-hmm. We need, we need political diversity. We do. But I think more important than that is curiosity because intellectual diversity is an outcome. It right. Curiosity right. is the practice. Yeah. Yeah. So we need the practice, not the outcome. We need the practice first. You know what I mean? The practice will make the outcome mm-hmm. natural. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely does. Yeah. And I, I think that, so much of the issue is that we're kind of, it's a multi-level thing, right? You know, your, your solution, which I think is a great one, is for the professor in that scenario to start to mediate and to say, okay, well, hold on a second, you know, because they have the authority yeah. in the room, they can sort of restructure the conversation so that something productive yeah. can happen. But if that professor is also scared, as you then- said, because if they go back into their you know, they go back into the faculty lounge or whatever, yeah. and someone finds out about what happened there. The professor now platformed this terrible right, idea right, and right, blah, blah, right. blah, right? Like that is, that is a possibility, yeah. right? Um, but I, I think so much of what's interesting to me about this thing is that this is another one of those sort of Rorschach tests where, you know, you mentioned it a little bit, but it's, it's this is going to be seen by people through those filters that yeah. they already have. And me included, right? Like I'm automatically going to be like, yeah, you know, I, because I've felt this issue, I've felt the chilling effect. So I'm, I'm inclined to be like, well, yeah, I'm not surprised by this, this, we'd really need to do something about this. Other people are inclined to be like, this is a moral panic. This is not actually happening. You know, opinions are not being stifled. And though there's one interesting kind of thing that, that I noticed people arguing, which is that self-censorship is you know, another way of saying, having tact and being prudent. Right. And yeah. yeah, Okay. But I think there's a difference Mm -hmm. between having tact and knowing, you know, maybe this isn't the best place. Even you mentioned it a little while ago of like, all right, maybe now is not the best time, or maybe I'm not, I don't have the energy for this right now, or it's, it's not going to be Mm -hmm. taken well. Let me, let me not bother in this moment. There's a difference between that sort of 
you know, conscious effort to keep the peace or to, you know, be more productive yeah. in that way. And a straight up fear of like, if anybody finds out that I think this, yes. something terrible I might happen to me. But the thing that is most important to highlight, I think here, is that whether the fear is justified or not, the fear mm-hmm. exists. And that comes from yes. something, right? It's not, it's not people That's just it. making this That's up, it. right? It comes from That's somewhere. Exactly right. So what's yeah, going yeah, on? Yeah. Right. So I think, think I think that? you hit it. That, that's exactly right. Because um, yeah. we see fear as a side effect and not as, as material that, that itself is material. Mm-hmm. You know, we, again, we're just, we're just very focused on ideas. We're very focused on words. We're very focused on what gets communicated, you know, explicitly on social media or wherever, like the content of things, but that's not actually the limit of the content. Passion is, is content. Uh, fear is content. The psychology is content. A conversation is made up of more than just words, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you get curious about the fear, which means that you have to validate it. You have to see it as something that is real. If you try to argue against the fear, you're not going to get anywhere. Like you said, it still exists. What are you, what are you trying to do? Right. Shame people for being afraid. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, okay. I guess maybe that's what you're trying to do, <laughs> but what does that produce? Mm-hmm. What does that produce? Um, you know, if instead you go, first of all, being afraid and being angry are not typically pleasant experiences for people. And I think it's, it's, a, it's important to remember that when people act out of anger and fear, it's not because, I, don't, I, mean, so, I mean, sure, we, we can enjoy some of that, I guess, but I don't think it's particularly enjoyable. Like, like you know, people, people are going through <laughs> no, some internal no. angst, right? When they, yeah. when they express, when, they, when we get emotional, there's, there's this internal angst. It's not, we're not just out there relishing, (laughs) relishing getting into these fights. Again, some people are, there are some bad actors. Absolutely. Most of us don't. Mm. And, (laughs) and so let's get behind the fear. Let's see that as data. Um, And, and that, I just, I just think that changes the game. And again, I, I think you can do that. You can do that all over the place. Uh, I think it is an extremely interesting and valid fear that, that people have on college campuses you know, these young people coming into a generation of there's power that's being shifted. They, they want to shift power to get society to a better place. And yes, they're focused on race and they're focused on certain characteristics of identity. And, and you know, I'm, I'm saying they generally, and I want to acknowledge that. I don't know, right? But I'm speaking in generalities just for now. Yeah, they want mm-hmm. to do this. And, and, and a lot of that is, is good. We should be questioning these things. The fact that we're questioning how power circulates, we're asking deep questions about what race means. That's good you know and then there's a sense of protection there's a sense of i know which way is up here and what emma said is bringing us down i get why you'd be angry of course you know but but can you get curious is what emma's saying bringing you down are you sure what if it's not you know what if what if what emma's saying can help others be open about what they're feeling and what if what if having a climate where everyone is truly more honest doesn't slow it down at all, but actually enriches the fight for whatever you think social justice is. What if, what if it is richer, you know, but again, I'll say, I get the criticism of slowing down, I think is a really well taken one because it's true that when we have Mm -hmm. certainty, we can act. And when we have uncertainty, we're not sure if we should act. That's true, you know, and too much, too much curiosity at every corner might slow us down. You know, I think about the war in Ukraine. 
you're not going to sit there going, I don't know, maybe the soldier just wants to talk. <laughs> Get the hell out of there. <laughs> you know, like, right. Okay. Right. But, it, yeah. but the question is just how often are you really, is it really about, is it really that dangerous? You know, and if you believe that all the yeah, exchanges yeah. are really that dangerous, well, you're going to live a really, really scary life. And I would say, be really sure. Question that because you right. might not have to live such a scary life. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. That's actually a great example because I think the mindset that so many people have is, no, this yeah. is a war. We are fighting for, you know, the soul of the country yeah. or, you know, we're fighting for this, 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 you know, beautiful future that someone is trying to yeah. stop right. from happening yeah. kind of thing. The stakes get to yeah. that level then it becomes justifiable to do things that would normally seem, you know, yeah. insane. Yeah. Right. And I'm yeah. grateful for, I, sounds weird, but I, I am grateful for the level of passion that has gotten us to that point because, you know, for example, I mean, I've been in journalism I know, 17 years or whatever. And I remember when I first got in, everyone was talking about racial diversity in newsrooms, but it was totally lip service. It was, we all knew it, you know, it was more like, mm. eh. And what's happening now is like, wow, there's actual, things are actually really happening, right? With hiring more people of color, with, Mm. with, with, with putting action behind this idea of let's get a more representative newsroom. I think there's plenty more places to go. I think we have to ask harder questions about what about representativeness on class or representativeness on ideology. We can talk all day about that. Yeah. But but this is a, a way of saying that even though it is not perfect, Whenever a lot of people feel really passionately about something enough to disrupt the way we do things out of, out of a good intention, it really, I am grateful. Right. And then there's this, there, there's also like this beautiful sort of force going, hang on, wait a second, let's not get reckless. And that's beautiful too. So, and, and again, I don't want to just right. sing Kumbaya. That's not why I'm saying this, but it's because, you know, the same mm-hmm. way that each individual comes to their views through a path that they have walked and we can get curious about the experiences and values underneath those views. Same with our society, the same with the groups and the movements as aggravating as they can be, depending on where we sit on all of this stuff, we're moving. You know, what none of us can deny is like, things are shaking around here. And, and I, for one, am, am really hopeful that even, even though we're having this conversation about like, man, you know, I don't know that we're learning that much in college. It's true. There's, there's a climate we got to address, but I'm pretty hopeful. We're, we're going to, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. I just, I just love seeing humanity move. I love, I love the, I love people. I love when people care, you know, we've got a lot of people yeah. who care and that's, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. I fully agree. Well, Monica, it's been so good talking to you. Um, we have a final question that we ask all our guests and I'm super excited to ask this to you. Our focus at FAIR generally is, is providing a pro-human approach to all of the topics like we have discussed today. Um, and I would love to know, what does, what does pro-human mean to you? What's your sense of what that means? And how would you advise people to be more pro-human in their daily life? What's something they can do to be more pro-human? Yeah, so pro-human means to me... I always had this image in my head and I tried to describe it in the book. I don't know how successful I was, but pro human means to me just seeing, seeing that all of these things that we have created in this world to mediate the way that we interact and live together are just things that we have created that ultimately 
all there is is human humans. Like in terms of how we move, I mean, obviously there's the environment and yes, there's, there's plants and animals. Yes. But, but in terms of, you know, how ideas shape our lives, how we choose to organize ourselves, the structures that we, that we use, our relationships, it's just people. It is just people. That's what pro-human is, is that, yeah, that there's that institution, there's that structure. It serves a purpose. It has been built by a lot of like a legacy of amazing things. Maybe it's shaky now. Don't be too afraid. Don't be too afraid of that shakiness. Because as long as we can see each other, you know, and the power we each have, we can do anything. We can do it. So pro-human to me is seeing, seeing each other's power and recognizing that, that that power circulates through all of us. And so long as we can see that each of us has something really interesting to offer, and no matter what ideas or conclusions we are making, we can learn from each other's stories. That's what pro-human is. And, and the, way to, the way to do that, one way to do that is uh, to switch from asking why do you believe what you believe to how did you come to believe what you believe, to get people to give you a tour of the path they walk to their views rather than a series of justifications. Get, get the tour, you know, see the path and you'll see the human. I love that. Monica Guzman, thank you so much for joining me on Fair Perspectives. Thank you, Angel. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.